everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Stripped by Sia, your podcast for strippers, sex workers, and all the fancy naked people in between. My name is Steph Sia. I am the host of the show, and I am a stripper, and I will actually be on stage tonight <laughs> when this is being recorded. Last time you could catch me um, at Shaker's Show Loud in Surrey, and I am also a digital content creator, so I do have OnlyFans, which is pretty, pretty active, and I'm also a former sugar baby. Uh, I started this podcast a couple years ago and I am glad to say it is still going and I still love doing it so I'm going to keep on going for as long as I can (laughs) and every every single week I bring on new guests including today which I'm really really excited to announce in a couple seconds since I've done this whole spiel thing. Um, I took a little bit of a break recording for the past month and a bit so I am sorry if I <laughs> it doesn't appear if I can speak English in this one, if I'm mumbling or stumbling or fumbling over my words today, but bear with me. We have a very exciting guest who I happen to connect with randomly on Instagram. And it just, I mean, this just seems to be the way that I <laughs> seem to be connecting with guests nowadays. I had met Kit Rothschild from the Pace Society located here in Vancouver just on Instagram a couple weeks ago and we connected and I can't even remember what the whole conversation was but I began to get interested in their work and what they did and I was like oh Pace is such an amazing organization it's been around forever 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 and I was like what what exactly do you do there and like and it sounded really interesting and we are going to get into it all so Kit are you there I am Yay. I I am so happy to have connected with you and so recently as well. So thank you so much for making time in your busy, busy schedule to chat with me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. So excited to bring you onto the show. Kit is the violence prevention coordinator at the Pace Society. And I am excited to hear about everything that you know about Pace, um, your own journey with sex work, what work you're doing with the organization and we're just gonna have a fun little chat over the next hour or so and i like cannot wait to just learn more about you and i i feel like i only just know you from our really small interactions that were on instagram and also this brief chat um before we hit record so (laughs) yeah let me unveil myself i guess as it were Thank you so much for having me. I really, yeah, I'm stoked to, to be here. And it was really cool to connect with you on Instagram. Yes. What we connected about was sex workers unionizing and yes. the model that the lusty lady had and how stoked I have been about that, like, as a person. So, yes, so stoked there we go. to have listened to that episode and to, yeah, to be here now. So thanks so much. You are so welcome. Um, yeah, I guess I'll start with, like, how I got into sex work and the work that I did. And then... Yeah. Stop talking about me as quickly as I can. Um, (laughs) I got into sex work when I was 21, living in Montreal. I started having really, really bad chronic pain and Mm. couldn't get a diagnosis and couldn't really, like, do regular work. Right. So I started camming when I first started, and I actually hated it. Like, it was just so, so (laughs) not for me. I don't know. I had the same experience. Um, And then a few, I guess a few months later... I had gotten a diagnosis and was on meds and still couldn't, like, couldn't keep a regular job. Mm, okay. I was looking in a paper and saw this ad that was like, dungeon hiring mistresses, steady clients. And I was like, oh, yes. I don't know if I could do that. And my boyfriend at the time was like, oh, no, 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 you would be great at that. <laughs> so I was like, wow. okay, well, give her a call. So I called this lady and she's kind of a character for sure. <laughs> yes. We ran the oldest dungeon in Quebec. Okay. Um, and my interview with her was kind of ridiculous. Like, she was like, what will you do? What won't you do? And I'd kind of always been into kink. So I was just like, well, I think these are some limits that I have, and I'm not sure about the rest. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah, that's fine. That's cool. Okay, what do you want your name to be? And I was like, I kind of don't know. <laughs> so pick something, like, quickly as, like, off the top of my head kind of thing. Oh, my gosh. And she was like, okay, well, there's a client coming in 10 minutes. If he doesn't complain, you got the job. What? 
So I was like, oh my uh, God. Oh, okay. So she like gave me like a little PVC outfit to put on and put me in the room with this client. Oh wow. And he was luckily hilarious. <laughs> he wanted to like do some role play where he was Snow White and I was the evil queen who had like kidnapped him because I wanted to be the fairest of them all. Whatever. Anyway, oh my gosh, I had a great amazing. time with it. I was like cackling the whole time. He had a great time. <laughs> I got the job. Yay. I worked there for a couple of years and I adored it. So um, cool. Like, I don't know if I've ever had a job since that was like, just, it, it just was a role that I could create really easily in my life. I had like a lot of characters to model myself after. Yeah. And the people that I was working with in the dungeon were fabulous and they taught me so much. And yeah, it was great. Oh my God. And it was also so cool. like, a fabulous way to pay my rent and pay for all my meds, which weren't covered and mm. were usually two or three times my rent. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I did that full time for five years until I decided that I was kind of tired of people calling me up while I was in line at the grocery asking me what I would and wouldn't do. <laughs> um, and so I was like, I should just go back to school and do something that is like steady. So I went back mm-hmm. to school for nursing. Okay. Whoa. Wow. And then there's oddly, like, so many crossover skills between doming and nursing. Like, basically the same job. Yeah, okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, both in terms of, like, soft skills, like, emotional labor, and also, like, technical stuff, like, medical play or whatever. Like, it's there's so much crossover. Wow, Um, I love that. So that was cool, but I wound up getting injured, and that gave me another kind of chronic pain. Oh, no. And so after about four years of nursing, I was getting back into doming because I just couldn't couldn't do a regular job anymore. Yeah. And at that point, I started looking for jobs in other cities, and I found mm-hmm. the job at Pace, which at the time they were hiring for the transition support worker. Okay. Which was kind of a complicated little situation. It was like a project that came out of money that the Harper government set aside for exiting, but oh. that's not really part of PACE's ethos, and so we right. just went it as a support project right. um, wow. and offered people the support they wanted. But so I came out to Montreal for that job um, okay. and did that for two and a half years, three years, I guess. Okay, And then yeah. last March transitioned into the position of the safety coordinator, but because of COVID wound up still like doing some support for quite a while and mm-hmm. doing some other stuff as well. But yeah, so that's how, that's the, the sort of like story arc of how I wound up a pace. Incredible. But yeah, I don't know if you have like specific questions about the work I was doing. I have so many questions. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, this just keeps getting better and better. <laughs> First of all, I love how they had that ad in the paper. Like, yeah, I was, it was brilliant. Yeah, like, oh my god. Like, you just don't know, you never, like, hear anything about that, like, anymore. Like, I mean, I would assume that was probably in one of the classified sections, possibly, or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, a classified section in what the equivalent of the Georgia Strait would be. Right. Or would have been. It doesn't exist anymore, but. Yeah. Um, oh my god. Yeah. I miss those personal sections sometimes. I they were know. great. I I mean, I used to love, like. You know, being as like a like a young child and just like reading through the classified section, like, oh, what what does this mean? And like yeah. the overall curiosity that brought and like, I yeah, it's it seems like a lifetime ago that those, you know, were still in existence, which totally. is really 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 sad to say. But um, I mean, it's such a cool story that you shared though about how you got into sex work because that's so non-conventional in in like today's <laughs> land. yeah and like certainly for like folks in the kink community a lot of people think there should be like a formal entry where you're trained by mm-hmm. someone and all of this and like yeah i'm glad that i had enough like personal kink history that yes. i didn't need tons of training and that the people that i was working with were like willing to share skills with me and teach me things because totally. that sometimes i think is lacking in the community mm-hmm. yeah definitely like, like people get viewed as competition and then nobody wants to share skills yeah and i feel that's like a thing not just not just reserved for the kink community but sometimes i feel like that's that goes within just a sex worker community in general the whole totally. competition aspect of things but i mean i'm glad that you had some great people there your colleagues to help you but 
I mean, going back to what you said just now, too, some of the King community might, you know, there should be some kind of training and stuff prior to working in this type of field. Is that something that you believe in now? Or what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think so many people experiment with kink in mm-hmm. ways that maybe, like, the formal kink community might be like, okay, that's not perfect, but, like, you're trying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I think as long as people are thinking about consent in those situations, and that's where the, like, heaviest weight of the experience is, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If they're having experiences where consent is not the, like, pivotal issue then I would hope that they would get some training where it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, for sure. I want to hear more a little bit about that first experience and, and just, like, what was going on, if you can remember, what was going on in your head when when <laughs> the headmistress was like, oh, by the way, uh, yeah, your first client's coming in 10 minutes. Like, I mean, I kind of thought she was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, in retrospect, that wasn't a wrong assumption, but I really, like, I really just was like, wait, what? I thought, I thought you would, like, call me in a week and be like, okay, now somebody wants to see you. I didn't think this yeah. was happening now. Yeah. Which was like, no, when I said steady clients, I meant it. So I was like, okay. <laughs> and yeah. so it was really, I mean, I think it, I kind of lucked out that he was my first, like, pro session, because he was mm-hmm. so much fun. And I saw him a couple of times afterwards, and always oh, just had, good. like, an absolute blast with A him. good time. Yeah, for sure. That's like awesome. I used to be kind of a drama geek, and I love acting. Yeah. Well. <laughs> like, a lot of domination and a lot of sex work in general is yeah. all how good of an actress you are, how good of an actor you are. 100% and so many as you said like so many different forms of sex work is acting uh, it's a role that we're playing um, it's a fantasy that we're you know playing up a little bit so I mean if you were <laughs> if you majored in drama or theater or something like that like I feel like you would be excellent in this kind of situation so yeah <laughs> that's yeah, really absolutely. cool so you ended up doming for for five years as well. So I know that you also mentioned you also did a bit of camming, which I also did last year, and I hated it as well. It just, it just wasn't I'm not the me. only one. Yeah, no, you're not the only one. Like, it's just something that, like, certain people can get, and it's your forte, and I'm just like, I feel like this is not for me. <laughs> there was something about camming that made me feel very objectified, whereas mm-hmm. when I was doming and I was in the room, I felt like I had all the power. Yeah. And whether yes. or not they were objectifying me, it was still a role I was more comfortable playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also share a similar sentiment in that as well. Like, when I was camming, it was like, okay, I just felt like people were picking things off menu, and, like, the menu was really cheap for me, in my opinion. And (laughs) And limited. It's a small menu. It is, and it's just like, okay, I just felt like a monkey. People are just instructing a monkey, like, do this trick, and and do this, now play with your pussy, and do that. And I'm just like... Yeah, totally. Show boobs. Yeah. (laughs) Show me your titty. (laughs) And I just, for me, like, it just seems very mechanical and not natural in any way. Like, I couldn't find any way for me to, like, really play in in that kind of atmosphere. So... Totally. Yeah, which is not, not okay for me, but... But well, it's I, not as fun. No, it's not as fun. I mean, and with doming, I feel I haven't done much doming as, as well because for me, it's not really my thing either. But yeah. um, I feel like there. What was I ask? What was I going to ask for? I forgot where I was going with that. But my my question was going to be. I just totally got derailed. I, my question was: Did you also dabble in other forms of sex work while you were doming, or was it you were just completely focused? Totally focused. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was the only thing I did. And, like, I, because of the nature of my chronic pain, like, mm-hmm. I had vulvodynia. I still have bite, but it's way less severe now. Oh, okay. Um, so it's, like, chronic pain of the vagina and vulva. So, like, oh most sex in my personal life wasn't happening. Mm. But being mm-hmm. able to be sexual in, a, like, a sadomasochistic kind of way was great. Yeah. And, like, was still allowing me to have a fulfilling sex life, even though I wasn't having any sex. And so, like, other forms of sex work just seemed like they weren't really options because I just wasn't able to have sex. 
Right. Yeah. So the okay that kind of would eliminate those other forms because it just wouldn't be enjoyable or and it would be yeah. painful. Or some for you. of them, anyways. Like I'm yeah. sure I could still strip or something, but I'm a terrible dancer, so <laughs> that would probably be awful. Or and or like I could probably do phone stuff, but yeah. that would. Yeah, I would just laugh a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I can just picture that Which now. is sometimes okay and sometimes not. But. Yeah, there's a time and a place exactly. <laughs> where it's appropriate. Um, yeah. <laughs> with, with when Don- they're paying you to laugh at them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and the humiliation kind of aspect, I can totally see that happening. Totally, yeah. <laughs> because you have an extensive amount of experience in doming, how did you, did you ever see, or did your way of doming change at all from, say, that day one where you had that first client to further down the line, like when totally. you were possibly exiting? Yeah. Did you want to elaborate about that? so much. I think at first I was, like, even in my own personal life, I wasn't very good at setting boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't very good at sticking to those boundaries. Right. And within... A few months of working in the dungeon, I was great at boundaries. (laughs) Like, really solid at it. Um, And also, like, probably within the first year, figured out the things that I was comfortable with and really into and the things that I really didn't want to do. So, like, when I started, I was doing golden showers, and after a while I realized I was really just not into that. Just not my thing. Mm -hmm. And so some of the way that I worked shifted and I think as my confidence grew I got stricter and stricter as a tom I was just like oh my gosh. not willing to tolerate any shit whatsoever yeah that's really interesting I like I love I love hearing about people's evolution within sex work and how much things change yeah and you change and like your work changes and your boundaries change too so it's really, yeah. really cool and it, like, to it, that. It has a ripple effect. Like, the confidence that I gained doming yeah. helped me deal with more stuff in my personal life, helped me, like, deal with confronting stigma when I was dealing with it. Like, so much stuff. I would be, I think, a vastly different person if I had not started doing that when I did. Yeah, and I love that you brought that up, too, because sometimes I feel like people don't really recognize that part of sex work and how healing, but also, like, how it can really build on those skills that you know are not maybe you're not maybe exposed to every day yeah totally and like this was a big part of what I was doing as like the support worker when I was doing transition stuff was like Mm -hmm. helping people pick out all of the different skills whether that's like emotional labor or like running your own business time management marketing Mm -hmm. whatever to like make a cv and go apply for a regular job yeah because I think a lot of people don't don't contextualize what they're doing for sex work as being applicable in other job markets, yes. but it absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, why don't we transition into, yeah, like your work with Pace and like how yeah. you start off as a support worker. And like, I love that last note that you just made there too. Like there's so many transferable skills that you can okay. bring on into a vanilla job or if you're transitioning or if you're trying to start your own business, there's so much. Like yeah, we, we are running our own business essentially. Yep. Right? Sometimes multiple businesses. Yes. All the and side like hustles. multiple streams of income and managing all of that and filing mm-hmm. your taxes. Like, all of these skills are so important. Yeah. And um, I... But yeah, Pace. Uh, I'll dive in there a little bit. So yeah. Pace has been around since 1994 and was started by a group of sex workers and some allies, friends of theirs, in like a one-bedroom apartment on Hastings. Yeah. PACE is a peer-led by, with, and for sex workers' rights and advocacy organization, support organization, and we've been in the downtown east side for 27 or 28 years. My math is terrible. (laughs) Um, Since 1994. We have a very, like, harm reduction approach. Everything is peer-led. We try and, like, survey our members as frequently as possible to get their feedback on different programs and different things that we're doing. And yeah, we've been a space for current and former sex workers of all genders for a long time now. I could not get a specific date, but a pretty long time. (laughs) Um, And we have a, like during COVID, we started a food delivery program Yes. in place of like sit down meals. We have a weekly supper club, which is on Zoom right now for our trans members, which used to be like a pretty lively in-person 
dinner and I think we'll go back to that quite soon. Fun. Which is great. Yeah. Um, and then sort of besides that other stuff that I do, we also have an indigenous sharing circle on Wednesdays, two counselors available. We just hired another counselor. It's really exciting. Awesome. Um, we have a support worker who is just a powerhouse and is totally brilliant a team of peer health navigators and then a couple of people working in like advocacy and like management running the organization whatnot it has been an all-gender space i think for the last decade but i couldn't i couldn't get somebody to confirm what year it had Mm. become an all-gender space okay um but for quite some time now i didn't know that that's really cool it's super inclusive yeah we we try our fucking best yes (laughs) (laughs) we really do like no I don't think any organization or business or anything is perfect because everywhere is just a microcosm for the fucked up systems that we live in yeah but Pace is always really trying yeah I appreciate that totally um and so they kind of came onto my radar in 2005 there was this sex workers forum in Montreal that was like people from all over the world came and it was just mind-blowingly cool yeah I had never realized before that like you could do sex work as activism. Yeah. Um, and so they were kind of on my radar then, and then more on my radar when they were doing all the stuff with Bedford, because they did a lot sort of to yes. support the the challenge that Terry Bedford brought. And Huge case. Sherry Kisselback, who for a long time was all of Pace, um, mm. had also like challenged the standing law. Okay. So they did a lot around then and I was just like oh what a great organization and I was at the time doing some work on the board of Stella which is a similar organization in Montreal in Montreal right yeah I follow them in Twitter cool yeah they're great Stella's wonderful yeah Um, (laughs) and so when I applied for the job and got it I was like well this is such a dream job like obviously I'll move across the country to work for this organization they're fabulous yeah and so it was pretty fabulous, like, I won't lie. Uh, it, it, it's been kind of a dream job since day one, despite ah. some of the, like, I don't know, funding restrictions or, mm. like, just the limitations of what you can do when you're working in a nonprofit trying to support people who are, like, really living on the margins and really need, like, a lot more support than than we'll ever be able to give, yeah. essentially, like, in terms of people needing housing, or people needing safe doctors, like, right. we're never going to be able to get all of the people housing who need it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's essentially been a dream job. What can I tell you about Pace? Uh, so much. <laughs> maybe I should start with Sherry a little bit? Yeah, of course. Tell Bye. me, tell me about this wonderful Sherry. She sounds wonderful. Yeah, Sherry's so fabulous. Um, Sherry Kisselbeck was the violence prevention coordinator for 18 years before me. Okay. Um, there was a couple of people in the position in the interim, but had a little like hard time keeping that staffed. So mm-hmm. I wound up taking it over. And Sherry, for years, had built and rebuilt this workshop. And it was like a series of, I think initially it was 12 workshops. Um, so people would come for six weeks for Mondays and Tuesdays and get lunch and get uh, like a 5 or $10 stipend and then talk about how to prevent violence, how to work safely outside and how to uh, like kind of spot if somebody is about to attack you, what to do if somebody attacks you. Oh, wow. And it, like included some physical self-defense that at the time was being provided by a couple of police officers who had volunteered cool. um, to like teach folks some judo moves. And Sherry's a, like just a masterwork of a human being. I adore her. She worked all over the United States, Canada, in Japan, and stripping and. Worked street level and indoor sort of interchangeably. Mm-hmm. She just, she's got like a million and one stories and she looks like the sweetest grandma next door and you would never suspect <laughs> that she's like, <laughs> just got the dirtiest mind and like a lifetime of like wild stories to share. And so she brought like a, a wealth of really important experience. Okay. Um, and like just... Yeah, was an incredibly well-respected community member for for as long as she was working there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there were periods where Pace didn't have a whole lot of funding, and so it would just be Sherry running her program. For a long time, we were yeah. operating out of a building that we were squatting on Cordova. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think we were squatting in that building for like six years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so there's been times where like Sherry and her work has really been like the mainstay of Pace. Okay. Yeah. And so her retiring, and she kind of retired progressively. And then when COVID hit, was like, well, I hate doing stuff online, and I'm not going to start doing stuff on Zoom, so I'm just going to retire. Mm. Which, now that the now that COVID is quote-unquote, according to the government, over, yes. I'm hoping maybe <laughs> we can tease her out of retirement to come back a little bit. Right? She's just so wonderful, and like, we need the voices of elders in our community. Yes, I we think. do. Absolutely. And she sounds wonderful. I, I want to get her on the show. You've like totally sold this woman. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I'm sure I could connect to you. I'm sure she'd be willing. And okay. I'd be happy to like go bring my computer over to her house and set it up so that she can use this. Because um, awesome. she'll be able to talk about how they challenged the standing law mm-hmm. um, more eloquently than I can, I think. But essentially what was, that was all about was that she attempted, with Suave, the Sex Workers United Against Violence right. group, to challenge the sex work laws. And she was told that because she didn't have any charges pending and because she wasn't an active worker, she didn't have any right to challenge the laws. Really? So Pivot took this up and Pivot and mm-hmm. Sherry and Suave took it to the Supreme Court and she won. Wow. In saying that, like, even though she's no longer working, she's able to challenge this. Yeah, for sure. Um, but at that point, Bedford had already started. Right. And that was... So it was, like, these kind of overlapping things. But it really, right. like, it changed how marginalized people can speak up against laws. Yeah. So it was, like, it was quite monumental as a thing in and of itself. Absolutely. Giving the marginalized groups a voice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! And being able to say like you can like I don't know maybe have time and space away from that thing and then be able to still advocate and not be discluded because you're no longer that marginalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a great point for sure. So yeah. she she created a legacy. It sounds like she really did, and she has educated like now two generations of sex workers. Yeah. Yeah, so incredible. when I was sort of looking at the occupational health and safety workshop that she was running, she was like, how would you modernize this? Mm. How would you like bring it up to date? Yeah. And I was like, A, I would stop using paper copies because trees. <laughs> B, I would talk about folks who are working online or indoor a little bit because at that time it wasn't included. Okay, um, yeah, that's a huge thing now, for sure. So, Canadian estimates at this point, the last thing I read that seemed accurate, said that about 20% of the sex work is happening outdoors, and about 80% is happening online or inside. So, mm-hmm. we wanted to sort of, like, update the workshop to include stuff for people who are working online or inside, because if we're not covering, like, 80% of the people who are working then we're not reaching enough of the population. Yeah, and it's not going to be representative as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And, like, um, in terms of our membership, mm-hmm. that's a really good question. I don't know if we've ever polled membership about where people, like, what the location of people's work is. I would hazard a guess that the folks who come and access our services in person are probably more folks who work outdoors and the folks who are accessing like resources that we have listed online or whatever Mm -hmm. or um like counseling might be folks who are working indoors but there's still like a pretty healthy mix in the population of our of our members of like where people are working or what kind of work they're doing right i think about i think it's 82 percent of our members identify as women Okay. We've got, I think, 12 to 14% who are trans and a pretty small percentage who identify as men. Right. And the other sort of, like, overarching demographics in our membership are, like, about 52% of our members are Indigenous, which mm. kind of stacks up with the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in sex work, like, across yes. Turtle Island. And 
I would hazard a rough estimate that probably 70 to 80% of our members have a disability of one kind or another. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think there's a huge overrepresentation of people with disabilities in sex work and it doesn't get talked about too much. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, disability in general, I feel it gets overlooked a lot in in lots of conversations, not just sex work, but in general and something that definitely needs to be talked about. We need to also account for those people as well. Totally. They matter. So absolutely. These are really, really, really interesting and eye-opening stats that you've shared. And I know they're just estimates, but I think it's really, really insightful for for you to include that in this conversation. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. I, one thing that I guess I would point out, just to illustrate like just how overrepresented Indigenous people are in sex work, it's like Indigenous people on average are like three to four percent of the Canadian population. Yeah. But they make up something like 70% of the people in foster care, yep. 60% of people in jails, mm-hmm. at least in our membership, 52% of the people doing sex work. So wow. the, like, the damage and continued harm that colonization has done and is doing yes. is so evident in sex work. Yeah, absolutely. And the damage, I mean, that residential schools and like how systemic that damage is going over and over generations yeah absolutely. is astounding to me and that's a whole other conversation too but it is yeah but also, also important to probably know. like not my area of expertise necessarily <laughs> nor but. is it mine but <laughs> but yeah this these are great great information to, to have thank you so much for sharing that and yeah yeah it's just incredible like the work that pace offers and I want to hear a little bit about more about the work that you do specifically too, in terms of like your your title, because now you have moved over and you kind of taken over a sherry in terms of modernizing the program, basically. So yeah, yeah. and like I had basically I had created a bunch of like powerpoints, mm-hmm. I guess about two years ago, and just kind of handed them to the next person who was in that position yeah and said like here you go run with it they made some edits the next person made some edits Mm. and then it wound up back in my lap and I was like okay well this is still like pretty good I'm better at making powerpoints now so I can like (laughs) edit and make things prettier yeah um but so there has been like input from other staff in this and it's all still like very heavily based on Sherry's material but so so there's an OHS program. I'm not sure what it's going to look like because we're just starting to come back after COVID. Our drop-in space has been closed and we haven't been running groups in person. Right. So it's kind of up in the air what it's going to look like right now. It might continue being online for people who want to access it online and also okay. being in person for folks who want to come in person. Yeah. Like, w- What did it look like before the pandemic? Right. Okay. So before COVID, it was like Mondays and Tuesdays. People would come for lunch. Mm-hmm. We would talk about stuff for about an hour and a half. They'd get a $10 stipend, mm-hmm. which like money-wise isn't great, but we solidly believe in giving people cash and we don't alter that. So yeah. And then it would run for eight weeks. Okay. And there'd be like 16 workshops and pre-COVID we had a couple of like jujitsu instructors come in to like teach people some self-defense moves at the end of the workshop. Yeah. And we moved away from police because most people don't feel comfortable in a room with police. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people (laughs) don't trust them either. Asking them to like wrestle a cop isn't really safe. (laughs) Yeah, definitely Um, not. So people were super into that and it was great and then COVID kind of just shut everything down and so I was like scrambling about like how to get information out to people yeah and so we start I started recording webinars about like what do emergency powers mean for doing sex work Mm -hmm. how to stay safe in terms of doing sex work and harm reduction during COVID-19 oh yeah um, with like guests speakers and whatever um did a workshop about how to work online because at the beginning of the pandemic there were so many people who hadn't worked online who were trying to figure out how to create an OnlyFans, how to create online advertisements whatever all that stuff yeah yeah and technically that's 
not really information we're supposed to give people <laughs> oh. <laughs> because, because of procuring laws and because of how vaguely worded the laws are right another, um, another gray area but, right <laughs> yeah it was like one of the many doors that the pandemic opened was being able to just like give people that information as to how they could start doing the work safely right because there were so many people who were just like in absolute dire financial straits yeah yeah it was not, um, not a fun time. Not a fun time. Yeah. Still isn't it was, a fun time. It was time. truly awful, yeah. And it's still really hard on people, yeah. economically speaking. And I think also for a lot of folks who are immunosuppressed physically, mm-hmm. also really difficult. For sure. During the pandemic, aside from making, like, an info booklet and doing webinars, I was, like, part of a committee that was supporting an emergency relief fund that we were running for some several months, I guess. Yeah, I saw that online. Can you tell us a bit about the Sex Worker Relief Fund? Yeah, um, we got some emergency grants from the city to create, like, any kind of support for sex workers during COVID, Mm -hmm. and the thing that people needed was cash, obviously. Yes, yes. So, depending on how big each grant was that we got, we're able to give micro-grants of, like, 125, or, yeah, 125 to Two hundred dollars, mm-hmm. depending on people's need. Yeah, and that was kind of hard to assess. Yeah, because well, everybody is like in pretty high need. Um, yeah, so for sure. that was it was some hard work. I'm not yeah. gonna lie, no um, but it was so rewarding because we got. I can't remember how many people, but we put one hundred and fifty thousand dollars into the hands of individuals. Oh wow. That's awesome. And so that was really gratifying. Yeah. And people were people were like really grateful and happy that we could help and Yeah. It was it was something that I wish we could just do permanently, but there's just not funding for it. We refused almost no one. Mm. Oh, like yeah. we literally kind of only said no to people who disclosed within the application that they had other sources of income. I see. That were like steady incoming whatever. Yeah. Okay. This is really, um, really interesting. But it, well, it was so much work. It was like just an enormous amount of work. I um, bet. And so when the, the like grants petered out, we were like, okay, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing that we like started doing during COVID that we're still doing now is like food deliveries for folks who oh, used cool. to attend our groups most often because we had like yeah. a variety of groups and like a bunch of people who were just like like every day in our drop-in space coming to groups or just hanging out and so we knew that those were the folks who were like most at risk for isolation and marginalization in the pandemic right that's really cool so those were the first people on our list to get food out to amazing initiatives these are just all so incredible and i had no idea even i knew about the sex work relief fund but i didn't know about the food delivery thing which you know that's such an apparent need during COVID too, because some people just can't go to stores. Some people are just like super high risk. Like there's so yeah. many factors there too. And costs have just skyrocketed. They have. And, like, wages haven't. Yep. Yeah. Well, like most Huge people disparity. aren't able to charge more now than they were six months ago. Although I think a lot of people bumped their prices at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, I think so. So that as they well. could see less people less often. But for a lot of people, they just didn't have the luxury, and so they just kind of had to keep working. And that's, I mean, that's part of why I would love for a future for sex workers to look like unionization. Yeah. Because I think people need sick days, and they need to retirement. Like, they need retirement funds, and they need, like, the support that other workers get. Yeah. And the government's not giving sex workers, so. Totally. Like, why don't we transition to that? (laughs) <laughs> in terms yeah. of like what what do you think the future uh, programs can look like future iterations of this program can look like what you believe in would be best so i'd totally. love to hear about this so i'm just starting to put out flyers this week for the like upcoming iteration of what ohs is going to look like and mm-hmm. i really want people's feedback sure so i'm kind of i haven't decided how much the stipend will be yet because I think we're going to do it less often so that we can offer people more money for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And depending on how many people sign up, might just do it like a drop-in. 
where I'm doing it in person and also on Zoom at the same time, and people can log in on Zoom and watch. Okay, cool. It's good to have all So, it will be a little bit different, but I really... I'm really excited to, like, be in a room with people again. Yes, real people, not just floating heads. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, so much of, so much of the programs that we have at Pace have been centered around food since we started, because Mm -hmm. you can't learn anything on an empty stomach. You just, like, you can't. You'll just fade. Like, yeah, nobody's doing great if they haven't eaten. Yeah. So I'm, like, so excited to be in a room with people where we can, like, share food again. And, like, it's just really cool. I'm stoked about it. So I think it will look like probably Tuesdays, maybe twice a month, mm-hmm. or maybe every week, depending on wow. uh, like how many people are interested and what that looks like. Yeah. If, because I've created like more webinars during the pandemic, I have <laughs> more workshops. Yeah, so you have more material. So it be like 10 weeks long. Wow. And meet twice a week or do it twice a year kind of thing and okay. or three times a year, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of all up in the air, but there's a crap ton of material. Totally. Yeah. So you have a lot of content there. You have a lot of stuff to, that you can work with that you can kind of Absolutely. draw out. So that's awesome. Like, and I know like with the restrictions being lifted here in Vancouver, I mean, Slowly. I mean, <laughs> it's a really interesting situation to be in, in my, in my <laughs> opinion, but I, I want to comment on that right now. But when do you expect to start these in-person sessions? Is this going to be something that's pretty immediate, like immediately available? I'm going or... to guess in August. Yeah. Yeah. Because it'll take a little while to see who wants to come and how many people. And then mm-hmm. depending on how many people sign up, looking at whether or not we can do it in pace because if it's only a few people I think we can safely have everybody in our space right but if it's more people than we're allowed to have according to the infectious disease people or whatever mm-hmm. then I think we're going to do it at 312 Maine okay yeah Just I don't know if you're familiar with that space or not but it used no. to be a police station and now is like a co-working oh. and community space oh okay which is like kind of rad that but... is really cool I didn't know about that yeah. Is that right? Think, like where? It's um like, it's right at through twelve Maine. It's like Maine and Hastings. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm like that's near the number five orange, I think. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. across the street and up the block just a blaze. I didn't know that, that space was available. That's really cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's super cool. And it's beautiful inside and they've done a lot to sort of like I don't I guess I wanna say cleanse it. <laughs> uh, former energy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause that was and so a, that's cool. That yeah. was a former police building. Yeah. Like right across from like the police museum and like down the street from fire hall. Yeah. 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 yeah I know exactly what you're talking about. Wow. Really cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, and then like, okay, so the OHS stuff is one chunk of what I'm doing. And then the other stuff that I'm doing is like public education. Okay. So I can't, I can't, this is my work. And that involves sometimes, like, educating doctors in clinics or private clinicians or therapists or whoever wants the training, really. Yeah. Um, and then I'm working on a couple of long-term projects. And the okay. long-term projects are, like, one is looking at creating, a co- like, an indoor co-working space for people that would be, like, co-op run. Yeah. Um, because I think... The, like there's still a lot of people who do car dates and mm-hmm. that is not not the safest no and a lot of folks who live in the downtown east side don't always want to bring dates back to their rooms right so having somewhere that people could work out of and share i think would be really beneficial and like help people stay safer while they're working yeah so for that's sure. like a long-term project and then the other long-term project is working on Safety alternatives that aren't the police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's just a lot of mistrust right now. Not even just right now, but, I mean, historically speaking. Yeah, like, right? I think at least since, I mean, things have shifted over the years. Like, previous generations of sex workers and sex worker orgs were, like, really trying to work with police and train them to be better and not to treat people the way they Treated a lot of, like, victims, family, victims, that kind of stuff. Because they 
they showed without like with beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had zero respect for sex workers yeah and trying to get them to come to the table has been really difficult and like mm-hmm. i don't know if you're familiar with the com- uh, living in community organization no so living Elaborate. in community is an org and their whole ethos um has been to help businesses and police work more safely with sex workers and how to like create communities where those can all be really seamless things right they've come out in the last year saying that the police don't interact with them as they should and so Mm. they are no longer welcome right to be a part of living in community and i think that is a is a sentiment that is like shared Mm -hmm. (laughs) quite a bit Mm -hmm. um and, like, certainly at Pace, we're, like, I've been doing a lot of work with the Defunct 604 network this last year mm-hmm. to, like, really work on taking away the police budget and turning that into grassroots safety initiatives from communities. Great. Wow. So that's the, that's the like, long-term picture stuff. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You were doing so much. Thanks. So much good work. Like I was like, okay, and I'm like, and like, actually, I have more work as well, and I'm doing these projects. Like, what? <laughs> I just, it just sounds like so much already in your role as a violence prevention coordinator. And I was like, okay, and like you're doing other projects on top of that, and I think it's just so so incredible, and just shows how much you care about uh, sex workers. And I think that is just so wonderful. And we need more people like you out here. Thank you. That is yeah. that is really kind. I appreciate that. It's just incredible. Like, thank you so much for sharing all this, and like, it really um, just brings and sheds light to like you know what what is needed out there, okay. you know, to support our sex workers. And I'm like so so glad that we were able to have this conversation and discussion because we're discussing topics that you know are not always discussed or are at the table. So I think it really does make a difference and I cannot wait to hear more about, you know, your progress with the project that you're working on. So it's all so exciting. (laughs) I will come back and chat anytime. Yeah, absolutely. But like, there's still questions. So (laughs) yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a, I feel like this is a big question and it's one of the questions that came in from the audience, but the question is, and it's a really broad question as well, so feel free to answer how you would like. But this person wrote in, how can we help our street-based sex workers? So. Okay. Uh, okay, so I think a big one is supporting orgs that are supporting folks to work on the street. So Lynch, mm-hmm. Pace, Suave. Mm-hmm. And I think also recognizing that there's sometimes a, like a fair amount of crossover with people working indoors and outdoors. Yeah, there is. And I think one of the biggest things is like not buying into the hierarchy. Yes. Any, you're not any better of a person or any better of a worker because you work inside or charge more money. Mm-hmm. It is the same work. It's the same, like same emotional and physical labor. It's just class stratification that yes. sort of divides us and it shouldn't be there so I think one of the huge ways that people anybody supporters of your show can support folks who work outside mm-hmm. is really just to like tear down the notion that there's any difference between the two absolutely absolutely I feel like sometimes we we forget about our street-based sex workers and our survival sex workers and as you mentioned it's the same work yeah. It's so much emotional labor there that we yeah. kind of sex workers have to go through. And like even sometimes just like the like the menial tasks involved with doing that. Like making sure you've got condoms, making sure you've mm-hmm. got lube, making sure your house is clean, making sure the person has towels, making yeah. sure they actually shower. Like, yeah. Yeah, one hundred percent. So much work. And like, <laughs> that is that is shared across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like the hierarchy and this is gonna be in a in an upcoming episode with a person that you might know, I feel, if you've worked at pace for a while. But I won't I'll tell you after we record who it might be because um, yeah. that will be the, the following week's episode. But just speaking to 
the hierarchy and how damaging that can be not just for people that aren't sex workers but like within our community adopting that kind of mindset is so damaging it really is it's like we are a community that's like pretty marginalized already already the lateral violence within the community is sometimes so vicious and it's like Mm -hmm. this is why we aren't organized and this is why we don't have a union and this is why we don't have workers rights yet is because there's so much like infighting and there's so much like well oh but i'm doing different work and so i'm you know i'm not that yeah and it's like we're all trying to survive under capitalism yes yeah. So, the, like, even the term survival sex work is, like, you can apply that to people who are feeling like they have to do the work to pay for their education. Just yeah. like you could say somebody's doing the work to pay for their food. Right. Really, like, survival is really in the eye of the beholder sometimes. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah. Going back to something you said, too, with, you know, labor rights these are just basic labor rights that we should we should all have and be granted what and this is my question this is just a random question that i thought of right now but what are your thoughts on because i know that there are there still is kind of a, a divide for those who don't want to organize i know there's are there, i know sex workers that don't want they want to keep their independent contractor type status but then when you really break it down it's not really an independent contractor except that they don't have to pay union dues yeah like what and like what do you have to say to that (laughs) i mean i i don't know part of me is like again there's a huge amount of privilege that's acting there Mm -hmm. where it's like somebody's like well you know i'm earning enough money or i'm earning tons of money i don't need to worry about needing to take sick days yeah However, there's tons of people in our community that can't take a sick day and are working sick. Yeah. And I wish that there was a fund available for those people to take a day off. Mm-hmm. Like, and so, like, being able to, like, work towards that and trying to build it into the idea that our community is not just people who are poor or not just people who are rich mm-hmm. and that we need to be supporting each other regardless of how much money we make. Is like I think a big part of where the like future of sex work organizing needs to be going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like personally, I feel we should just all be on the same page. And you brought up a good point there too. Like there is definitely a good amount of privilege in that kind of conversation for those who are making bank, but not everyone is even on that playing field. Right, like, I'm kind of an anti-capitalist. I really advocate for, like, rich people just giving their money away. Yes. And so I'm, like, maybe not the best person to ask about it. Um, Because I, because I'm, whatever, I'll give my my income away. Yeah. I'm never going to be able to own a house. I'm not that worried about it. Mm. Um, Whereas I think some people really get into the mindset of, like, and this is also survival of like, well, I don't know if I'm going to have a client next week, so I can't yeah. give any of my money away and I have to keep it all. Totally. And it's like, yeah, it's feast or famine always in this business. Yes. It's always like that. And so I think, I think there just needs to be like more solidarity Across with people, regardless of whether they're doing direct or indirect work or mm-hmm. how much money they're able to charge. Definitely, 100%. I guess my last question for, I guess, the organization is how can we support PACE specifically? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We're always, now that we're going to be reopening, we're looking for volunteers to help us do all sorts of stuff. And I think, like, as we reopen in the next, I think it'll probably be another month before the last person in our office is double vaccinated and mm-hmm. we can like really open our drop-in space. Yeah. Um, during the pandemic and even before, like a lot of our volunteers are indoor workers or people who have like, like a lot more privilege, let's say, than mm-hmm. some of our other members. Yeah. And so many individual workers donated to the emergency fund And so, like, I think people are thinking about mutual aid and are supporting each other in lots of ways. And I'm sure there's also, like, friends who are supporting each other in 
in like monetary and also emotional ways as well for sure in all of that yeah I that's, think the that's important community in vancouver is pretty tight and has like a pretty i, I don't know i think like a pretty good ways of communicating with each other and like yeah keeping in touch all of that is really important definitely yeah and like as you said too just like even checking up on people's like mental well-being that was a huge thing and still is a huge thing too so checking up on your colleagues and your friends just to see like how are you doing today like that can go a long way it really can it really can Mm -hmm. and i think like whatever sex workers are typically quite isolated in the work that they do yeah and the pandemic has been just uh magnifying that a lot so whatever mutual aid is happening is wonderful and should only be supported to continue absolutely we always need donations not only of cash but of like clothing makeup Mm. sex toys whatever people want to get rid of somebody will give a second life to for sure yeah absolutely we also have a project starting that we are like kind of fundraising for i guess right now okay um which is the creation of like a black indigenous person of color led sex work advisory committee that would advise pace as an organization and take part in like research and stuff like that and so we're trying to like counteract the like widespread employment discrimination Mm -hmm. that like shows up kind of differently in sex work Mm -hmm. where it's like a lot of minorities you don't see them in other positions but they're overrepresented in sex work they are um and trying to like correct that and make sure that we are as an organization acting with the best interests in mind of those community members at the yeah. heart of what we're doing going forward that's great um, and to sort of like advise us on how we can get rid of some barriers to justice right wow so many great things and so many ways that you as a listener can help so i will be plugging in all the links down below so if you haven't checked it out already please give it a click you know be curious help out wherever and whenever you can so but kit that brings me to the end of the episode i'm so sad <laughs> we already it's already been an hour <laughs> well like yeah I, i'm glad that you're keeping an eye on time because i probably just could have kept talking oh so me too I really appreciate it. <laughs> There were some episodes in the past, I'm like, whoa, this is really, really going, you know, like a lot longer, which I don't contest, <laughs> but I'm also like, I told you it was going to be an hour, and I'm like, oh, I almost feel bad when it goes over, but... <laughs> oh, it's all good. It's all good. But I'll have to get um, you in for another episode, for sure. <laughs> I, yeah, anytime. Honestly, you're lovely. This has been really lovely, and like, probably one of the most delightful interviews I've ever done. Oh, yay. Oh, great. I'm so glad to hear that. Yay. <laughs> But yeah, come back anytime. Before I let you go, where can we find you or where can we find Pace? Uh, you can find Pace yes. at pace-society.org on the interwebs. And we're going to be updating our website very soon, which is great because it is, it really needed an update. Um, <laughs> As well as we're on Twitter, yes. at Pay Society. Where else can people find us? I mean, people <laughs> are welcome to come to our drop-in space once we're reopen, and yeah. we will definitely announce on our uh, social media when we reopen our space. But we also have, like, a, sort of like a drop-in window if folks just need harm reduction supplies. We're open Monday to Thursday, 10 to 4.30. 10 to 4, sorry. So folks can come anytime and like pick up lube, condoms, or whatever else they might need. Awesome. This was such a great conversation. I'm so happy to have connected with you and got you on the show. So thank you so much, Kit. It was a pleasure to speak with you today on the great work that you're doing for our community. So thank you, thank you, and thank you. (laughs) No, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And the, uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the like, allocates are really nice. 
much. Yay. And it is stripped by Sia on Instagram or my personal, which is Sia Steph. And it's new episodes every single Sunday. Don't forget to like, rate, share, review, and subscribe. And we'll catch everyone in for another episode next week. Bye. You're listening to Strip by Sia, hosted, produced, and edited by Steph Sia, artwork by Maria Bellandorama, music by Ted D, and photography by Ian Dabber.